You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. That was my ice jingling for a nice little morning treat in my refresher. It's summertime, even though I have refreshers year-round because I don't really drink coffee from Starbucks. You can get refreshers from Dunks and Starbucks, just so you know, for anybody out there. The Dunkin' Donut refreshers, there's not like quality control. I mean, each place does it differently. In some places, they're really gross because they have too much green tea flavor. So I'm basically stuck only getting refreshers by the place by us. But anyway. That's just her life. That's the burden she has to bear in this life. If anyone works at corporate Dunkin' Donuts, uh, let's talk for a second. (laughs) Let's talk about it. Um, I really want to try a refresher now that I've seen Grace live through her refresher life. It's refreshing. I'm a a coffee girl. Yeah. I I only like espresso, not to be annoying. Oh, my God. But espresso. (laughs) Espresso. espresso espresso which we did a topic on if anybody is interested we did and i don't like it like i don't drink it every day but if i am going to drink coffee that's what i drink but that feels like crazy to buy from starbucks to go you know that's like something that you get when you're like at the cafe you're gonna drink it there yeah 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 yeah. type of thing well we have an espresso machine anytime you're over you're more than happy to have an espresso so. have you guys gotten the cafe bustello pods yet Oh, no, we should. That's the Cuban coffee stuff. I think I'm going to, I feel like one day I'll get an espresso just to try that because I have the stovetop one, but it's like kind of Mm -hmm. a pain. I mean, that's why I would have it more if it was easier to make. Sure. But it's like to do the whole thing on the stove. I mean, I don't have time for that on a day to day Uh, basis. Yeah. I need to like press a button. Yeah, no, no, no. Matt and I used to be very much like, oh, we're going to make our coffee every day. We do the French press, blah, 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 like the whole song and dance. And, after a while, it became a chore. It literally became a chore. Like, no, I made the coffee yesterday. You make the coffee today. No, you make the coffee. Blah, 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 blah. And then, like, the cleaning out process is so annoying to me because you have to take the the French press into pieces and blah, right. blah, blah, clean it nice. I got the Nespresso. Cuts out the middleman. I'll tell you what. All you got to do is fill water and you're done. Right. Well, I guess well, it technically is an, an additional middleman, but I like this middleman better. Or... Whatever. I'll keep my eyes peeled on Facebook Marketplace. Um, yes. Well, shall we just... <laughs> I was kind of like, how can I segue this to introducing us? But well, 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 well oh. yes, we do need to introduce ourselves, but I think it is important for us to let our listeners know yes. that we did another thing that we said that we were going to do. Right. I'm wondering if Grace... Yeah. Grace, Wait. do you want to tell our listeners what we did? Wait, hold on. Went to the Art You're Institute? Like, oh, no. Well, we did do that. We right. did go to the Art Institute, and we saw photos or paintings by um, the Lautrec, Toulouse, Toulouse Lautrec, mm-hmm. who uh, painted the Moulin Rouge ladies. They were awesome. It was very cool. Uh, but we also played a game of Clue for the first time in right. a very long time. Oh, and so fun. It was the most fun I've had in a long time, I think, and it was good. I, that's why it. i really feel like clue is one of the best board games we definitely need to play again but my other problems like people are going slow you know i know it's like you got to be moving through this because it, i know when, especially when you're playing with that many people and everyone only has like three cards to start it's yeah you know, yeah takes uh, a while to to get through it i think because 
of the people there, you and I, I think, were the only ones who kind of like immediately got back into the swing of how to play Clue. Everybody else was like, wait a second, can I do this? And yeah. Oh, I want to guess this. It's like, you can't guess the kitchen if you're in the study, like things like, like that. Come or, on. <laughs> or like moving their pawns, like <laughs> not using no. the tiles. It's just like, okay. <laughs> uh, well. Well, we had fun. a lot of fun, actually. And I won, mm-hmm. of course. But Grace, I was on Grace's tail the whole time, which allowed me she, to win. So I commend yeah. her. Well, I'm not going to get into what happened, but it was very <laughs> annoying because, you know, we figured out what it was at the same time. But Chelsea was like very close to the little cellar and was. it was her turn to go. Yeah. So anyway. Well, I will say that the reason I won was because I was able to piggyback on some of the information Grace was acquiring. She would go I was, like, like right in before the trenches. me. I like really. I was like, I'm on the trail, <laughs> and I was like, she's on the trail. I better follow her. Uh, it, was, it was fun, though. amazing. Yeah, it was good. And and it took me a little bit to like figure remember what the strategy was. So I kind of like effed up the beginning of the game because I wasn't keeping track of certain things. So I'm excited to play again. You know, with a I clear know. head and like know, know from the get go what what I'm doing. Well, now that but, Hannah knows the the secret, we're right. gonna have to. Do we have like a copy? Do only Michael and Kara have have it i think so we have to we gotta go to like a there's gotta be one at a thrift store somewhere for sure i mean i have one at home at my parents maybe i'll bring it back oh not a bad idea right um cool well anyway we do cool (laughs) things on this podcast we're mentioning that because chelsea did clue as a topic many moons ago (laughs) so we finally played um but yeah this is two girls one crossword i'm grace topinka I'm Chelsea Rowe, and this is your favorite weekly podword, Crosscast, where we talk about all sorts of fun things like Clue, or what was the other one we just talked about? Oh, Toulouse-Lautrec, the painter mm-hmm. who painted the things at the Moulin Rouge. Uh, yeah, we're cool. We do cool things here. Cool, cool, cool. Shall we get into our Polapalooza from last Let's do week? it. Let's do it. I asked our Twitter followers to choose their fighter between Converse and Vans. The like, oh. I was gonna put more, but I was like, I feel like Converse and Vans are like the two. They're the ones. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't even know who else really fits in with there because I feel like you're either one or the other. Even though I've had both, and it depends um, on the time period. You know, like Etnies right. wouldn't be in there now, but they would have been in like ten years ago. Right, well, and more I than actually, that. Oh my god, there is a Converse. I want to get the. Converse Runstar hike, and I do want to get a pair of platform checkered vans. That's like it's on my list of potential shoes to buy. Um, but the winner with sixty-seven percent of the vote was Converse, <gasps> and then Vans had the rest. So I'm not I don't really know. surprised. I, mean, I don't think I do feel like Converse is kind of untouchable in a way. They've been around for longer, mm-hmm. and I think like Converse transcends different like subsets of like people groups you know like you've got right converse is more than just skate i mean they were started for like basketball that's like what people would wear as their athletic shoes which is hilarious because they have they're so i can't imagine like running in converse i know i know it's crazy but yeah i feel like it transcends just being like a skater boy aesthetic whereas like vans feels very skater boy right which is okay. Yeah. But I think that's probably why Converse won out. Mm-hmm. And I think Converse, like, they've got a good look to them. Not that fans don't, of course. I like both. I like both. I'd be, I know. I'd Converse be hard are just so classic, though. They are. I think if I was to buy a pair right now of mm-hmm. shoes. Oh, God. I think I would go Converse. Yeah. 
But I, I think say, it's just they're more cla- I don't know, more classic is not the right way to say it, but maybe sort of like adjacent to classic. Yeah. I do feel like high top converse are a pain in the freaking butt to put on though. But mm-hmm. they now make um not converse, but sh- you can get like really stretchy shoelaces. So when I get my new Runstar hikes, which are high top converse, I'm going to buy these like stretchy shoelaces cuz I basically only wear shoes that I can slip on. Like none of 100%. my Adidas that I wear all the time, they they haven't been untied in like years. I just exactly. like slip them on. Exactly. So I need shoes like that. Otherwise, I won't wear them. The same right. reason why I reach for my Chelsea Doc Martens instead of the lace-up ones all the time. Yeah. Because I'm like, oh, I just want to be able to slip right in and slip out, you. you know? Matt has a pair like that, too. He's got high-top Nikes, and he loves them. But it's like fighting a war to get them over his heel, you know? And it's right. like... That's that's the way the world works. Truly. Um, well, should we get into our heights and shites? Yes. Will you start us off? I'm looking something up really quickly. Sure. Um, I did the Monday, June 19th New Yorker by Brooke Husick. 18 across. Catch on the bounce? Question mark. Echo locate. Cute. I wish I like could a little bat. I feel um, like you just have to keep trying. Right. I don't know if it's in the cards for me. 20 across, way out there. The answer was unheard of. 23 nice. across, cure-all, elixir. <gasps> elixir? Um, 35 across, message that might end with over. And you think like, you know, over walkie-talkies. But mm-hmm. it was breakup text. Like, we're over. If you if you were watching on YouTube, you would know that my mouth was agape there because I liked that clue. Sometimes I think sometimes my reactions are lost because they're not verbal. Right. We need to have like the what's it called when you have the captions that also describe like <laughs> what's going on. Exactly. Um, eight down public image informally question mark profile pic. OK. Do you remember when in my space era it was called your default? Yes. New default. Remember your top eight, top ten? Yeah. I would always try and, like, I think I would try and put funny people in there to, like, avoid, you know. You would. Hurting anyone. My top four were locked. Okay. Right. I did actually. It was perfect because I had three best friends. And so I'd have my sister and then my three best friends. But it was, like, what order do you put them in? I feel like I was, like, I'm just going to put you guys in alphabetical order and call it a day. Right. Right. That was such... If you don't the drama. You, right. If you weren't around for MySpace, essentially it was like, you know, a social media profile, but you had a top eight where you listed your top eight friends, which is awful for people in middle school. Yeah. Cause like, you know, you could you thought you were someone's like top eight and then they took you out. Exactly. That that was devastating to be removed from somebody's top eight. Or to like get even to get bumped from like number two to eight. That was saying right. something. Right. Um, I'm glad that doesn't exist anymore. 39 down, pseudoscientific say, and the answer was woo-woo. Oh, I was like, I thought you said oo-woo. Like, (laughs) no. (laughs) Still good, though. Still good. Um, Who did that puzzle? Who was the constructor on that one? Brooke Husick. Brooke Husick. Every time I hear her name, I just think about the crossword tournament that I did with Hannah, where we literally answered, I think, one answer in her, like, (laughs) puzzle that she had for that specific tournament. And I was, like, humbled. Yeah. Graciously humbled. Classic Brooke. Classic. Okay. I'm going to take us to the Friday, June 16th, New York Times by Natan Last and 
the JSA um, crossword class, which we see sometimes. They publish a, you know, a crossword in the New York Times once a year, I believe. Um, And this is what I was looking up. But essentially... I don't know if people know. I think it's like Jewish Senior Association. But it's basically like, you know, seniors who take a crossword class. And then like once a year, they create one and it gets in the New York Times. And it's always really good. I know. This was a very good puzzle. I feel like because it's like so many different people, like from all different, you know, walks of life contributing Mm -hmm. to it. So Mm -hmm. I feel like the clues are always really interesting. It was fun. I was really excited that I clicked it and it said the JSA crossword class. I was like, oh, I'm definitely doing this one then. Anyway, so 13 across, shell stations, question mark. Taco bars. Nice. Um, 24 down, faints from emotion. Plotzes, which I think is from Yiddish and it's spelled P-L-O-T-Z-E-S. Amazing. It's an incredible word. Um, 31 across, spending excessive time reading negative news online, doom scrolling, which I was, right. you know, I, I try not to be ageist, but I'm, I'm like seeing something like doom scrolling with like a senior group. I'm like, oh, I'm glad that they know what doom scrolling is, you know, um, 35 across modern form of ostracization. Ghosting. No. Cancel culture, which is oh, interesting. Right. Um, and then I'm just going to include this because I was going to do this as a topic and then I didn't, but I also just like seeing it in the puzzle. 36 across popular vodka vodka cocktails. And the answer is white Russians. And I actually did a topic on cocktails. So sometimes I'm like hesitant to do like, oh, let me cover white Russians. I already talked about cocktails overall, but sometimes these, if you talk about cocktails overall, you've got like this overarching theme and it's nice. You could talk about specific cocktails if you want, but sometimes Specific cocktails like a white Russian could have a really interesting history. I think they sometimes still could, like do a deeper dive. I mean, it's true. what we're in episode one sixty seven now. Like sometimes yeah. it's really. I mean, you're doing the crosswords throughout the week, and you're like, I got to find a topic in one of these that I haven't I done before. I'm like, I'm about to do a topic on the word the or something. <laughs> yeah. You know, like <laughs> sometimes it gets hard. But also, have you ever had a white Russian? No, it has milk in it, right? Oh, yeah. it's. I would rather die. Sorry. Mixing milk with alcohol is like two of my least favorite drinks. <laughs> I agree. I've had one in the past, and a good one is like a milkshake. A bad one is like a cup of milk. That's yeah. all I have to say. Okay. You know? Noted. Back to you. Um, I did the... <laughs> Wait. I... Okay. I did the June 21st New Yorker by Palo Pasco. Oh, I didn't see that he had one. Right, of course. Bunch of great clues. This is um, one that I didn't know. Blank tribe of Florida. People who call themselves the only tribe in America who never signed a peace treaty. It's the Seminole tribe. I knew about the Seminole tribe. I didn't know that they called themselves um, the only tribe who never signed a peace treaty. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 29 across. Untitled blank game. Video game in which players can honk to disturb villagers. It's the untitled goose game, which... Uh, I played at Chelsea's house. Which is one of my favorite. It's so like... frustrating at first, but <laughs> it is fun. Yeah, it's one of those parts. It's a good party game. If you have like a group of people that you're kind of just like hanging, sitting on the couch, et cetera, right. et cetera, and you need something to do. That's a game. It's a good one. Um, five down, one of two in a ghost costume. Eye hole. Oh, I was like thinking of like a horse costume. 
You know, like how there would be two people (laughs) in a horse costume. Okay. Um, 27 down, beautiful setting, question mark. Tablescape. Cute. It was like ring or something. Very good. And then um, the last one, 29 down, cosigns on a bill, question mark. And the answer is goes Dutch. I love that phrase go dutch yeah and i, I don't know where that goes comes from i know the most thing i'm like hmm, maybe that'd be a good topic actually mm-hmm. we might look it up who knows um i'm going back to the new york times the tuesday june 20th new york times by amy lucido the theme was good um the revealer was 10 down absolutely lose it or a hint to 6 18 21 and 24 down uh, and the answer was blow your top so the first word of those uh, answers to 6, 18, 21, and 24 down have to do with blowing, essentially. Anyway, okay. <laughs> stick with me here, folks. Stick with me. Okay, so 24 down, tiny computer with a dessert-inspired name, Raspberry Pi, which I had never heard of as a computer, but you could blow a raspberry. 18 down, uh, poppable packing material, bubble wrap, mm-hmm. which is a fun answer. Um, six down, political campaign made up of a series of short appearances, which I didn't realize there was a name for this. Whistle stop tour, so you hmm. can blow a whistle. And then 21 down, 1948 musical based on the taming of the shrew. And the answer is kiss me, Kate. You can blow a kiss. Very cute, right? Very cute. Um, I also ha- liked from this puzzle... 13 across, anxiety-based reason to attend a party in modern lingo, and the answer is FOMO. Um, I really, I rarely get FOMO, um, like truly rarely. I'm mostly like at the event, and I'm like, fear of not being home. Oh, that's <laughs> me. <laughs> um, this was funny. 20 across, person who can't be the victim of a pit- pickpocket. A nudist. They cannot oh, be right. pickpocketed. Speaking of pickpockets, have you seen the Attenzione pickpocket on TikTok? No. Have you seen those? Oh my god, this account is going viral. There's a woman who becomes familiar with the various pickpocketers in, it looks like they're in Venice. Mm-hmm. And whenever she sees them around American tourists or just tourists in general or in busy, crowded areas, uh, will go around, Attenzione pickpocket! And like, just reveal them it is hilarious oh i God. hope you start you seeing be them careful now. though i know and it's interesting because all these pickpockets are like young women just like normal right. millennial well, looking that's women like the best you know the best cover-up exactly um also from this puzzle shout out to your fiance because i think this is related five down purplish fruit used in smoothies and the answer is acai which is normal to see in a crossword but the reason i'm bringing this up related to your fiance is because she sent me a TikTok the other night um specifically about the word acai and how if you mispronounce words like acai and you get made fun of it there is an app for that so that you can right. practice or like learn how to say words that you mostly only ever read and the app is called youglish y o u g l i s h but essentially you type the word into this little platform and it scans youtube transcripts to find that word so you can watch multiple YouTubes where people are actually saying the word aloud instead of having to use those those crappy and sometimes um but sometimes I feel like they're really predatory wrong. like well <laughs> like the Google one sometimes <laughs> like that's not how you pronounce that like I know I know 
Anyway, so apparently there's this app for that. So Youglish, I felt like that's really helpful for Grace and I because there's tons of words that we struggle to pronounce. Yeah, she showed it to me too. Don't worry. <laughs> she was like, I think the- you, Chelsea could use this. I was like, shut <laughs> up. Oh my, I know we could. I'd like to see you have a podcast and pronounce everything correctly. Yeah, okay? honestly. Okay, okay, okay. There are some anyway. words that's like, you only ever read them. How am it's I true. supposed to know how it's pronounced? It's true. Like, anyway. I know, I know. Anyway, that's what I have from that puzzle. Um. Okay, let's see. Well, I'll end with the Tuesday, June 20th New Yorker by Natan Last. 30 Across, Thingamabob, Doohickey. Cute. 37 Across, Whispered Question When a Mystery Woman Enters the Room, Perhaps. <gasps> Who is she? Who is she? Um, 42 Across, Does Numbers as a Number? Question mark. And it's charts, like a num- a musical number. Oh, I was well. like, is this an account chart thing? No. <laughs> um, two down, shag under the table, maybe. Area rug. I love a shag rug. And then I'll, 47 I'll down, animal known for its writing reflex, which is a cat. They always land on their feet, supposedly. Oh, writing, like R-I-G-H-T, not right. W-R-I. Aha, uh-huh. very good. I only have two more, well, three more from the Wednesday, June 21st New York Times by Jimmy Penniston. Uh, these are just cute, so I had to bring them up. 19 across, Neptune for one. And the answer was Sea God, which is hilarious because my dog's name is Neptune, but it's even better. It gets better because right next to that answer, right next to it in the puzzle was 21 across, Honey and Sugar for two. And the answer was Pet Names. Cute. And... I was like, I'm dead. I know that they meant honey and sugar, like, you know, something you might call, like, your lover, right? But right. My dog I name think is it was Neptune. And a message to you specifically. Right. Not cute. I was like, I have to talk about this. Uh, I also liked 54 across confession from someone who had an ace up the sleeve. Is I cheated. <gasps> Drama. <Cute. laughs> Drama. Anyway, that's everything that I have. Well... Should I flip the coin then? I think we should flip the coin to get into our topics. I'm flipping the coin now. Sorry, I took a nice long <laughs> sip of my refresher during the coin flip. You're going to need it because uh, you're first. It's <gasps> tails, kid. Me? Okay, let me get set up here. My topic comes from the Sunday Washington Post puzzle from june 18th by evan bernholz evan making an appearance hello classic evan 52 down historical czech region near morav moravia speaking of Euglish. hold on it's bohemia bohemia i was wondering i'm like it's moldova Bohe- okay so i'm Very gonna good. talk about bohemianism you know as we know it like boho chic yes bohem and then but what, where it actually comes from, because Bohemia is, in fact, a region in Czech. And are they related? Well, kind of, but it's kind of like more of a mistake, the reason why they're associated. But first, I'm going to talk about the actual region in Czech Republic. Let's do it. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in for it. Um, well, OK, first, the, the term Bohemian in the West refers to a person who lives an unconventional lifestyle, often with few permanent ties involving musical, artistic or literary pursuits. But like the clue said, Bohemia is also a historical region of Czech Republic. So how do we get that term? Um, this 
The beginning information is from an article on ancientorigins.net called The Kingdom of Bohemia, European Jewel in the Heritage of Czechs by Alexa Vukovic. Okay. Alexa says that the Kingdom of Bohemia was, quote, a powerful kingdom that lasted for more than seven centuries that shaped the future and the identity of the Czech people and made them into one of the most prominent members of the diverse Slavic family tree, giving them a strong and indivisible heritage. And I will say mm. that any Czech people out there who are maybe listening, yes, my last name is Czech. And if you go to Czech, Slovak, er, Czech Republic, you will see, um, well, my last name is Topinka, but you'll see Topinki on the menu. It's like a little toast. Dish. So yes, I didn't one of know my, that about you. One of my AIM screen names was Lil Toast. That is freaking cute. <laughs> yeah. Is your is that your dad's side? Yeah. It must be, obviously. But um Matt's family is Slovak. So the other our our the other, friendly the neighbors. Other half. Yeah, yeah, the other half. Yeah. Um okay. So today Bohemia is the largest region of Czech Republic, so six point five out of 6.5 million out of the 10.5 million um, people who live in Czech Republic, 6.5 million live in Bohemia. So it is like the largest region. Wow. Okay. In Czech Republic, um, it mo- the name most likely came from the Celtic tribe Boi, B-O-I-I, that settled in the area. So basically, this, these Celtic, this Celtic tribe settled in the area, called it Bohemia. They were kicked out during the Gallic Wars of Julius Caesar, leaving it open for Germanic tribes to move in. This time in history, you know, tribes were kind of settling and then moving, whatever. So a lot of different people came through Bohemia. By the 6th century, Slavs had established themselves as the dominant ethno-linguistic group in much of Central and Eastern Europe, including Bohemia. And because of its central location, it like, um, it kind of became one of the most powerful regions in among the Slavic tribes. Hmm. Fast forward to 14th century, during the Luxembourg dynasty, Charles of Luxembourg, who was the king of Bohemia, became... Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV. He founded the University of Prague, which led to Prague becoming the capital of the empire and also the center of intellectual and artistic activity in Central Europe. So Bohemia was really like this center for education and art um, in the Slavic or in Central Europe. Fast forward to the 15th century and Bohemia was questioning the the Holy Roman Empire um, and the Catholic... As one does. Yeah. And the Catholic Church. Um, Because at this point, they were taken over, or they were, like, mostly ruled by the Germans who were Catholic versus, like, the people to the north of them were more just other Christian. But um, this is a very truncated version of history. Um, It's okay. (laughs) The Hussite Wars went on for years and eventually led to religious freedom in the area, relative, of course, to the time, and less power of the Catholic Church in the region. So this was kind of the beginnings of, like, the Protestant movement. Okay. Um, The Protestants have arrived. Right. So, fast forward to the 17th century, the Catholic Church got their revenge once again when the Habsburgs controlled Bohemia and nationalism and Protestantism were once again suppressed. Right, um, right, right, right. The Czechs and Slovaks came together after World War I against the Habsburgs and formed the Republic of Czechoslovakia. So, they were originally two separate countries, but they were both being, you know, controlled by the Habsburgs. That kind of brought them together, and so they created Czechoslovakia. Um Czech wouldn't be fully free from, or Czechoslovakia wouldn't be fully free from German control until after World War II. At this time, uh, the Czech language, like once the Germans were kind of kicked out, the Czech language went through an intense period of national revival because they had been dominated by German like for two centuries. Yeah. So there was like this huge revival of, you know, Czech pride and like, Mm -hmm. you know, just original Czech culture and language. Mm -hmm. So this, they went through like a huge strengthening of Czech national identity and rekindling their connection with 
the glorious uh, past of Kingdom of Bohemia. Okay. In 1993, Czech and Slovakia peacefully uncoupled in the Velvet Divorce. So, not oh to get too God. hard to not to get too into why they broke up, but you know the <laughs> they were just two different like ethnic groups basically, and they came together at a at a point where you know they needed each other, but then it became kind of hard for. Like, they just realized that they needed to. It would be better if they just separated and did their own thing again. Yeah, their kids were, like, growing up, and they needed, you know, they were happy that mom and dad brought them into this world, but it was time for mom and dad to do something for themselves for once. Right. So it was a, you know, peaceful breakup. Um, Very well. Very good. That's a very brief history of Bohemia and the Czech Republic. I think that's probably more history on that than the average american will ever hear in their life so thank you for that um so now let's go over to new york in 1917 a group of artists climbed to the top of washington square arch started a bonfire and declared that greenwich village had seceded from america forming the independent republic of bohemia so this is familiar to me okay right so sure the kingdom of bohemia was progressive for its time you know they had like one of the first universities in the region and you know they fought for like religious freedom but how did the you know bohemia in czech republic make its way over to america in this like bohemian lifestyle well tell me they stopped in france of course paris <laughs> to be exact <laughs> we're in paris once again we're back in paris so let's rewind to like 1500 years ago the Rewinding. Roma people, Romani people, were uprooted from their homes in northwest India and they became a migratory or began a migratory existence which lasted for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Romani people are originally from India, but then it, the things I read, I was like, not sure why they got kicked out and then they kind of, you know, started this. They just moved around from place to place, but they often mm-hmm. weren't welcome wherever they went. They were always labeled as outsiders, you know. They still are in a lot of ways, which right. is bananas. Yeah. Um, in the 15th century, they found a brief respite in the kingdom of Bohemia. So they were given a letter of protection and other privileges, which allowed them to like settle down for a bit in Bohemia. And I couldn't un- like I was trying to figure out why they they did this. The only thing I could like potentially put together was Bohemia was going through a period of like religious freedom and not wanting the Catholic Church to have so much power over them. So maybe they were like, oh, anyone is like welcome to come here and, you know, sure do whatever they want to do. So they did extend this uh, letter of protection to the Romani people. So they lived in Kingdom of Bohemia for a while. Then in the 1800s, the Romani people migrated to France and the French people were like, where'd you come from? And they were, you know, they came from Bohemia, even though they're not really from Bohemia, you know, they're from India. But at that point, they that was like the last place maybe they had been before going to France. So sure. The French just referred to them as like Bohemians or like uh, Bohem, whatever. It was often Love a, you, Bohem. Sorry. Right. <laughs> it was often a pejorative term used to describe them. Um, you know, they were labeled as outsiders and they lived in their neighborhoods were often like very low rent and low cost of living. So a lot of artists in Paris started living in Romani neighborhoods. And so that's where like the term Bohemianism emerged. It's like these people who it was associated with the Romani people at first because the French thought that they were from yeah. Bohemia, but then it just got associated with anyone who kind of lived like an unconventional, transient life and started, you know, referring more to people who were like artists. 
Sure. Struggling artist. Um, Got it. And yes, Bohemians were known for drinking absinthe, which <gasps> if you want to listen to the absinthe episode, listen to episode 138, Little Green Chokehold. Talk about absinthe there. Ooh. Um, the first usage of the term bohemianism in its current meaning was by French journalist Felix Piat in 1834 in an article called Les Artistes. He derogatorily described this personality type as, quote, alien and bizarre, outside the law, beyond the reaches of society. They are the bohemians of today. Oh, I love that. Um, the term was commonplace in the 1850s when um, Henry Merger began publishing and staging, staging a series of stories called La Vie de Bohème, which would eventually become the world-known Puccini opera, La Bohème. What's the plot ah. of this opera? This is from uh, OperaNorth.co. Let me know if it sounds familiar. Four struggling bohemians, a poet, a painter, a musician, and a philosopher, are living together in Paris, Paris, when one freezing Christmas Eve, their lives are changed forever. A girl named Mimi knocks on their door looking for a candlelight, and she and Rodolfo fall in love. However, the rush of love at first sight soon gives way to something, something much darker. It becomes clear that Mimi is desperately ill and that Rodolfo, in his po poverty, cannot provide for her. Our bohemians try to find their way, but are soon sharply awoken to the harsh realities of life. I had no idea that that's what Rent was based off of. Right. And like, if you look at the names, I mean, Rodolfo is Roger. There's like a yeah, Colin, yeah, yeah. a French version or Italian version of Collins. Um, so yes, that is what Rent is based off. Um, one of the songs from the opera is called They Call Me Mimi, which is the last line of Light My Candle from Rent for all you, you know, Rent fans Rent out heads, there. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what? Yeah, very interesting. Okay. Seriously. Yeah. Um, okay, so bohemianism spread outside of France. Um, it went to England. The lifestyle was popularized in William Makepeace Thackeray's novel, Vanity Fair, which was published in 1848. And in the 1850s, um, aesthetic bohemians began, began arriving in the United States. Um, a lot of them were in the Greenwich neighborhood in New York City. And, eight, and in 1857, a group of 15 to 20 young cultured journalists flourished as self-described bohemians. So these were like specifically journalists. They called themselves bohemians. They would gather at a German bar on Broadway called Faf's Beer Cellar, which doesn't exist anymore. They, like, reopened one a couple of years ago, but it, it closed down. But one of the most well-known members of this group was Walt Whitman, and they also considered Edgar Allan Poe a bohemian before his time. He was already dead at this point. <laughs> um, similar journalist groups around the country, like, there were similar journalist groups around the country that called themselves bohemians, but... They were all um, broken up during the American Civil War because they were reporters and they were sent to cover on the conflict. So they were all kind Got of it. split apart. But correspondence began to take up the title Bohemian and it soon became synonymous with newspaper writer. So like when mm. it first came to the States, it was very much like a journalist type thing. thing. Okay, interesting. Um, I, I can't get too much into this because it's like very complicated. There's whole books written on this, but the beginning of bohemianism sure. in the U.S. was very intertwined with the Civil War, with what was going on in the South, because um, bohemians were not only into the arts, but they were also into like political radicalism and social revolution. Hmm. After the war... Kinda checks out with my understanding of it. Yeah. Right. After the war, bohemianism lived on. In the early 1900s, Greenwich was the hub for struggling artists, but then in 1919, a subway extension brought Greenwich Village within a 10-minute train ride of Wall Street, dramatically raising the rent cost. So in 1920, a lot of bohemians went to Paris in Washington, D.C., although they still existed in New York, but okay. that's why there's a lot of, like, American artists in Paris in, like, the 1920s. Sure. 
Um, okay, this is from the Bohemian Manifesto, A Field Guide to Living on the Edge by author Lauren Stover. It says that there are five main styles of Bohemians. There's beat, which are drifters, but non-materialist and aren't focused. Think of like Kerouac. Exactly. Yeah. There's a dandy who has no money, but they try to appear (laughs) as if they do have money by buying and displaying expensive or rare items. Mm. There is the G-slur, which is the expatriate types. They create their own ideal of nirvana wherever they go, which, you know, is another issue. But basically people who like, you know, are migratory. Um, Uh There's Zen, who are post-beat, but instead of focusing on art, they focus more on spirituality. And then there's Nouveau, which are Bohemians that are rich, who attempt to join the traditional Bohemianism with contemporary culture. So that leads me to the final thing I'm going to talk about, the term Bobos, or bourgeois, (laughs) bohemian, that's a hard (laughs) word for me to say. Um, Okay, so the term was introduced by cultural commentator David Brooks to describe the 1990s descendants of the yuppies in his book Bobos in Paradise that came out in 2000. Brooks describes Bobos as highly educated folk who have one foot in the bohemian world of creativity and another foot in the bourgeois realm of ambition and worldly success. So Brooks talks about how historically it was the bohemians against the, you know, bourgeois, but over time, things that once belonged to counterculture bohemians like veganism, henna hair dye, basmati rice, etc. had been adopted over by the bourgeois sounds yeah <laughs> so i'm going to end with this quote quote they've taken all the things that were from the 60s of interest to teenagers like free love and nudity and gotten rid of them and kept all the things that are of interest to middle-aged hypochondriacs like whole grains and fancy rice <laughs> aye, aye, aye. yeah so i think um that movie that came there's like the movie that came out with how rent was written with andrew garfield mm-hmm. i think it explores this more especially bobos and oh stuff. interesting um, but yeah that's that's bohemianism i mean it's very broad i was like every i tried to look for a list of like famous bohemians but it was like to create a list of all the bohemians would be so tedious because it was like any artist like yeah you know no, i get it mm-hmm. during that time but um yeah that's that was something i was definitely movement. interested in i was interested in this in high school because i was obsessed with like jack kerouac like obsessed with him alan ginsburg wall whitman like the whole fucking the whole gamut i am no longer on that train but right. god it's easy to feel like that's something you could buy into right you know? well you think of like how popular boho chic was for oh a while, yeah but it was like very exp- like anthropology is obscenely expensive but they're like boho is there yeah there's you know all these think pieces about how like you can't be bohemian if you Ha- like part of being bohemian is like living in poverty you know yeah because you're not supposed to mm-hmm. care about materialistic things right right i mean i don't know the whole thing is so, kind of like messed up in a way too because it based the whole term is based on something that's not even like a miss nomer of a nomer of of a group of people Romani people but yeah um yeah i mean i'm sure there's always been that like artists who are able to be struggling artists because they are wealthy like the woman yeah. who invented the bra that she it went just to paris and was hanging that. out with all these artists drinking absinthe and stuff and like doing all this crazy stuff but she was like filthy rich so yeah she could well, yeah. like you know f off and just hang out yep there's yeah 
we could talk about that for a long time, but I, th- I feel <laughs> right. like Paris is a hub for that particular t- type of social environment happening in right. multiple eras throughout time. Yeah. Um, when in doubt, just go back to Paris. And we've mm-hmm. always said that. Mm-hmm. It all that. starts in Paris. <laughs> but yeah, that's Bohemia. Ooh, thank you for doing Bohemia. I liked that topic. Makes me want to watch Rent again. We should watch it. I haven't seen it since college, Grace. We need to watch Rent and we need to watch Titanic. I know. Alex texted me last night and asked me to watch it with you. So. Right, because I was like, we should watch <laughs> Titanic. She's like, I don't want to watch them. Like, no one wants to watch that. Now is like times of the essence now. <laughs> it's topical again. It is topical with with James Cameron in the news. Everybody's everybody's talking. Yeah, I forgot no. from your challenger topic how like he's one of the leading like <laughs> ocean Deep exploration people. people. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah, when worlds collide, am I right? Right. My topic comes from the Friday, June sixteenth, New York Times by Natan Last and the JSAA, the JASA crossword. Class 28 down. Typesetting consideration. And the answer is font. Ooh. I'm going to start with a quote from an article on font fabric titled Type Origins, History and Evolution of Type by Konstantin Kirilov and Nikolai Petrozenko. Quote. Although we tend to think of typography as a relatively modern invention, the practice of imprinting symbols into soft or malleable surfaces has been around for thousands of years. We can find examples in ancient Mesopotamia, where clay cylinder seals were engraved with financial transactions, official signatures, and even protection devices. While in essence you can call any letter or symbol written by humans typography, we mostly associate the word with its contemporary definition, which traces its roots to 1450 and Johannes Gutenberg's introduction of the metal movable type printing press, end quote. So we're talking about typography today. And this is an interesting topic for a couple reasons. Um, partially because it seems like it could be very straightforward, but I think typography is a type of science mm-hmm. um, that you need like a design degree to fully understand. So we're going to have to stick together with each other here today. We're going to hold hands and just trust the process. Before we get into the history, I want to talk briefly about some typography classifications because it'll help us understand terms later on. Um, And each of these types of uh, classifications have subsets and additional classifications and so on and so forth. And we can't get into all of them. We will for some, but let's just get started. Okay. Okay. I'm going to talk about five basic type typeface classifications. There are more of these depending on which system that you follow, but I just wanted to focus on these. The first is uh, calligraphic or calligraphic typeface. Calligraphic typefaces are inspired by the art of calligraphy, so they look like calligraphy. The second is black letter typeface. These typefaces are a script style of calligraphy and are highly ornamental. So think of calligraphy, but more script, like Mm -hmm. cursive-ish sort of. an example of this is the New York Times logo. That is black letter typeface. Right. Okay. Right. Then we have serif typeface. I think a lot of people know, have heard serif or sans serif. So serif. These are typefaces that include semi-structural details on many of the letters. Uh, and some people call these little structures feet. 
So when you look at a serif typeface, it has like the letter E. It's not just three lines that kind of come off the stem. It's three lines. And then e, the top line has like a little foot at the end and the bottom mm. line has a little foot at the end. That's what a serif is, that little ornamentation. So some subsets of serif typefaces. We've got old style, which is characterized by a low contrast in stroke weight and angled serifs. So think of Garamond. Actually, it might be a good idea if you have your phone open or if you're at work listening to us, if you want to pull open a Word document when I talk to you about some of these fonts, you can look at them or you can Google them as I'm talking about them. It might be easier for you to like conceptualize them. But right. old style serif font would be like uh, Garamond. Then we have transitional serif typeface. Uh, which have a more vertical axis and sharper serifs. So think of the Baskerville font for that. Then we have a modern serif typeface, um, which uh, they have straight serifs and are on a totally vertical axis. Think of the Bodoni font. And then we have the Egyptian serif, or also known as the slab serif, which are typefaces that have heavy serifs uh, and were used for decorative purposes and headlines because the heavy serifs uh, basically made them illegible the smaller you printed them. So, you know, Egyptian or slab serifs are used for big prints, like posters. Think of Rockwell, which is like a really heavy set right. serif font. Then we have sans serif. So a sans serif is a typeface that doesn't have any serifs on it. So, you know, those little feet we talked about, these fonts, or sorry, these typefaces, I should say, do not have the feet. A humanist sans serif typeface uh, includes proportions that are modeled on old style typefaces. So we just talked about old style serif. Now imagine old style serifs like Garamond without their feet. That mm -hmm. is what a humanist sans serif typeface is. Uh, like Gil's Sans, that's the font you can you can look up if you're interested, if you're if you're on Google right now. Then we have transitional sans serifs, which are the same thing as a transitional serif, except they don't have feet. Think of Helvetica. Hmm. Then we have geometric sans serifs, uh, which are based on geometric forms. Uh, in some cases, lowercase letters like the letter O might have perfect geometric forms. Think of the font, uh, sorry, the typeface Futura. Then we have script fonts, or sorry, script typefaces. I keep messing this up. You'll have to bear with me. Anybody that's a design person, and I keep saying font, please forgive me. Uh, we'll talk about the difference between typeface and font in a second. But so a script typeface are based on like flexible brush or pen strokes, and they basically look like handwriting. Okay. Mm. So now, so font, font versus typeface. Be? Comic Sans is, uh, I think it's called decorative. So mm. it would be under the decorative uh, classification, which I didn't include here. But like decorative okay. classifications are the ones that are like, it's like a Western typeface or like the big bubbly ones or something like Comic right. Sans. Um, so now we're going to talk about font versus typeface, because I kept calling all of these things fonts, which is not the case. They are typefaces. Apparently, the font versus typeface debate is a huge thing. It's not really a debate, but it's one of those, like, well, um, actually moments that people will give uh, you. According so, to my research. According to my research. So keep this in mind for the next time you're at a party or you're in your next design meeting <laughs> and you want to impress your typography designers. If you want to be um, annoying, then. <laughs> or if you want to be just really effing annoying. I actually have this here. Uh, I'll give you a tip to look cool or just annoying <laughs> is what I wrote. Um, okay, so fonts and typefaces are two different things, sort of. It's easiest to explain with an example. So 
Helvetica is often referred to as a font. And this is because when you go into Microsoft Word and you're, you click the font dropdown, or if you're downloading a font from online, a font, quote unquote, when you add it to your, your database on your computer, you add it through like the font window, right? So this can like cause some confusion. That's why things are often called fonts when they're actually typefaces. So Helvetica is often referred to as a font, but it's actually a typeface. It's a typeface because it is a complete set of sans serif characters with a common design ethos. So the Helvetica typeface includes every single letter in every single weight, every single size, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay. At the same time, a typeface the Helvetica typeface included comprises of a collection of fonts, which um, each of them have a specific weight, style, and size, for example. For example, Helvetica regular in literally any size is considered a font. Okay. You could think of the typeface as the whole family of fonts. I see. So, like, because there's Helvetica bold. Exactly. That's a font. I see. Exactly. Okay. Ooh, that will be fun to be annoying with. Like, exactly. Oh, Helvetica is your favorite font? Isn't that a typeface? <laughs> <laughs> we'll be unstoppable. We're literally about to be unstoppable. Okay. So there are a ton more like font classifications and like more info on the typeface versus font discussion, but we're going to talk about the history of typefaces. Typography and printing as we know it began in the 11th century in China during the Song Dynasty. Invented by Bi Sheng between 1039 and 1048, when he created movable type using porcelain. So he created using the entire Chinese alphabet and the character system. He made it made all of these like basically little stamps. These are kind of like stamps. That's the best way we can you know describe them of all of the different characters, and you could set them into this thing and print papers with them. But if you are not familiar with like Asian alphabets, they have thousands and thousands of characters Mm -hmm. it's truly insane how many characters that they have um so you can imagine how complicated it was to print in chinese at this time just based on the sheer volume of characters that they had versus like a like the roman alphabet like a through z that's all we have Mm -hmm. in english right Um, okay so he was using porcelain it was later discovered that wood was easier to replace uh, and all you need to do is quickly carve a new letter or character so they moved into wood. But then metal, metal movable type was invented around 1230 in Korea. Uh, and metal proved to be a much more hard-wearing material than previous materials used. So people started using metal. Independent of this, in Europe, the Romans developed the chiseled Roman square capital system known simply as capitalis monumentalis, which was essentially an ancient form of Roman writing uh, and the basis for today's modern capital letters. So the capital letters that we have come from this Romanist or capitalist monumentalist. Uh, around the first century BC, Roman inscriptions changed into using this, like this basically the serif font, this serif capital font. Um, and this change spread rapidly due in part to the huge geographic spread of the Roman Empire. And it set the stage for the entire development of Western type structure. So you have these two things happening separate of each other that eventually are going to inform the invention of the printing press and typeface as we know it. Moving forward. Okay. Before the invention of the printing press by Johannes Gutenberg in the mid 15th century, and before the movable typefaces in Asia, 
Uh, books were written by hand. Generally, these books were reserved for the elite, though there were some growing literacy in the middle class, which increased the demand for books. But as you can imagine, writing books by hand was a long and arduous process. Gutenberg realized that being able to mass produce books quickly and cheaply was a lucrative process. Duh, let's like, you know, let's do it. So he was inspired by the movable type used in Asia. And there was also a screw type press that was used by farmers in Europe. Anyway, so he began to devise an idea for the first printing press. He was a goldsmith, so he was able to create durable letter blocks that could be used over and over again. Um, and while arranging the letters for a page could take an entire day, the page could then be printed as many times as necessary from that single day's work. So it made the process very, very quick. Gutenberg's letter forms were based on the black letter calligraphy that was used to write manuscript. We talked about black letter uh, earlier, okay? The black letter typefaces are a script style of calligraphy and can be highly ornamental. So think of the New York Times logo, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine read like every book was being printed in a typeface that looked like that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the downside of this typeface was that it limited the amount of text that could fit on a single page, creating longer books that required more time to set up. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was faster, but now the books were longer, blah, blah, blah. Were we wasting resources? So much ink was being used, blah. So much paper was being used. Black letter typefaces, so that New York Times look, um, was originally was the original standard for printing presses. This is because they mimicked the handwriting of the time. That's what people's handwriting looked like. Right. But like I said, it, I, first of all, that's bananas. Yeah. To me that that's it's like, how long did it take you to like. write anything? It's like when SpongeBob like writes the the to like begin <laughs> his story. <laughs> it's or like his you're essay. just like, right, and you're like, oh, this is the classic way to do it. I'm like, just speed it up, you know? Yeah. Just it's speed like, it up. Let's simplify things a little bit. You don't have to have like nine swirls on your T. You know. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Like I said, downside to this was that it took up a considerable amount of space on the page. So, in 1470, a man named Nicholas Jensen realized that by simplifying these black letter forms, printers would be able to fit more text on a page. This meant shorter books and faster setup times. He created the first ever Roman typeface. We didn't talk about Roman classifications earlier, but it falls under the serif classification. Roman typefaces were originally based on this Roman capitalist monumentalist, monumentalist from Rome, okay? Mm -hmm. So his Roman type is the basis for multiple modern fonts, including Centaur, created by Bruce Rogers in 1914, and the Adobe Jensen, which was created by Robert Slimbach in 1996. While Jensen's Roman type saved space on the page, others were trying to save even more space to create more efficiency uh, of book printing. In 1501, Aldous Monut and Francesco Griffo created the first italic typeface, which allowed even more text to fit on the page because everything was slanted. Mm -hmm. So you had more, just more space to use. Uh, and while uh, this was initially invented to save space, italics is still used today for like emphasis of text, right? Right. However, efficiency and space were not the only typographic challenges tackled by the first type designers. Can you imagine the most important one? We kind of talked about it a little bit like with the Rockwell legibility but, yes readability so readability of early typefaces was not ideal especially the italic typefaces favored for saving space so in 19 or so in 1734 william castlin created a new typeface style that included more contrast between strokes in each letter form it's now referred to the old style type these typefaces made letter forms more distinguishable from one another at a glance improving readability we talked about old style earlier 
These were characterized by low contrast in stroke weight and angled serifs. So this is Garamond. If you're if you have your Word document open, this was like a Garamond type typeface. I was going to say font typeface. They're going to come after you. <laughs> they're coming from. I feel them. They're just like breathing on my neck right now. In 1757, John Baskerville created the transitional typefaces. That name might sound familiar to you because he is, in fact, oh, the right. inventor of the Baskerville font. Anyway, so John Baskerville created transitional typefaces. We also talked about uh, transitional earlier. These have more vertical axes and sharper serifs like the Baskerville font. With Baskerville's invention of transitional typefaces, printers began to see improvements to type, ink, the printing presses, etc. But... His typeface was blacker than that of his contemporaries and therefore criticized due to the thickness of its strokes, the drama. Mm. One of his critics even said his typeface would, quote, be responsible for blinding the nation, end quote. I mean, honestly. Everyone has haters. They had nothing else to talk about but the Baskerville font back in the 1700s. Nevertheless, one of the dear friends of the podcast, Benny Franks, was a huge fan of the Baskerville typeface. Okay? Anyway, so... While Baskerville's typeface was a commercial failure, it was eventually revived in the 20th century, and he has since been hailed as, quote, the greatest printer England has ever produced, end quote. Isn't that how it always happens? Just remember, folks, if everybody hates you now, they might love you later. Well, right. you'll be dead, but... Goes to show, yeah. I mean, there's so many times in our, like, in different topics where it's like, everyone hated this, and now it's, like, super popular or well-known. Sometimes it happens after you die, though, so... We'll right. see. Maybe I mean, once we die, this podcast will really take off. <laughs> hopefully, and it can pay for the the generations of family that we have to come. Right. Um, it's like, I'm leaving everything to my cat. My wife. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, in 1815, the first ever Egyptian typeface became commercially available. Egyptian, also known as slab serif, are typefaces that have heavy serifs uh, and were used for decorative purposes and headlines because, you know, like I said before, the heavier the serif, the, when the, the font is smaller, it makes it harder to read. The Rockwell font is an example of this. The, the first style of um, slab serif, the font, or sorry, the typeface was called <laughs> Antique, and it was designed by Vincent Figgins. There are, these typefaces were more attention-grabbing than traditional serifs. The primary characteristic of slab serif typefaces was the lack of curvature on the serif. So if you think of the Rockwell font, it's very linear and blocky and thick and just kind of it's thick and blocky slab serifs quickly grew in popularity in the early 19th century alongside the rise of printed advertising some slab serifs were developed specifically to be used uh at larger sizes for printed matters like posters um i think of like Uncle Sam wants you or whatever. Like Mm -hmm. i think of those types of posters and rockwell immediately comes to mind i don't know if that's actually the font that they used but that's kind of like what I imagine. Right. Interestingly enough, advertising also brought about the first sans serif typeface in 1816, developed by William Caslin IV, the two lines English Egyptian, also known as Caslon Egyptian, um, was an accessible typeface at the time. It was a very successful typeface and was used extensively in advertisements and printed material from the early 17th or sorry, 19th century. Sans serif typefaces. Uh, were also likely a direct product of the, quote, Egypt mania uh, that took place in the West during the 1800s, where uh, essentially Western cultures became obsessed with Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we just, we talked about, there is a woman 
we talked about on the podcast that was obsessed with Egypt, or maybe I just saw it in a film recently. I can't remember, but like during the 1800s, people were obsessed with Egypt and it influenced art and whatever in Paris and beyond. Mm -hmm. Anyway, okay. So during this Egypt mania, or sorry, Egyptomania, um, typography took design cues from ancient Egypt uh, and their art uh, and their black lettering style, where serifs were either minimal or entirely missing. And so the next significant... Uh, so that's kind of like how sans serif kind of started, you know, infiltrating the typeface community. Um, but the next significant development in sans serif font, sorry, type came a hundred years later uh, with the design of Edward Johnson's iconic typeface that is used for the London Underground, which is still used today. Interestingly enough, mind the gap, mind the gap. So the 20th century brought more important developments to the typeface history. The first full-time type designer was a guy named Frederick Gowdy, who got his start in the 1920s. He created iconic fonts that are still in use, including Copperplate Gothic and Gowdy Old Style, based on Jensen's Old Style typefaces. Then in 1957, Max Maidinger designed Helvetica, which is arguably the most iconic typeface from the 20th century. Other minimalist typefaces were developed in the 20th century, including Futura, developed by Paul Renner, and Optima, developed by Herman Zapf. All of these fonts are like super famous and i what one of the things that i'm taking away from this is that i didn't realize that these fonts had designers or that anybody cared this much but apparently yes. every, i mean i feel like i should know this we work with design companies and designers are insane and i say that with love it's okay to be insane about the things that you're passionate about but it was still surprising to me that's like oh yeah this font was designed by this person this font was designed by this person i was just like wow it really is much more it's, it's deeper an art. than I thought it was. Yes, it's an art. It's an art in a way that I didn't, I couldn't comprehend until I started doing this topic. Um, the first digital typeface, Digi Grotesque, was designed by Rudolf Hell. What a name! In sixteen, uh, sorry, in nineteen sixty-eight. That is a great uh, last name, right? I'm in the market for a new last name, by the way. <laughs> potentially. So. Do you think Alex would buy into Hell? <laughs> Maybe. I love that for you guys. Okay, so early digital fonts were bitmaps, which resulted in less than ideal readability at small sizes. And then true type fonts were created in the 1980s, which allowed for computer displays and output devices like printers to use a single font file, which is interesting. They had to use two files before. In 1997, open type fonts were invented, which allowed for both Mac and PC platforms to use a single font file. And this is an incredibly broad overview of fonts in the you know, digital age, but I just wanted to give you guys a taste. If this is something you're more interested in, let me know. I've got tons of references I could send you. Uh, in 2009, the web open font format, WOFF, was developed, and it paved a way for widespread adoption of web fonts in 2011, when all major browsers finally adopted support for WOFF. This revolutionized digital design, allowing designers practically unlimited options in web typography. Fonts are crazy. Fonts are an art. Design is an art. Um, And I feel like there's so much I could talk to you about typefaces in general. Mm -hmm. But I want to end on a very interesting quote. Uh, It's an anecdote that I found in an article um, by Phi Forrest called The History of Typography, Retracing Letter Forms from Hieroglyphs to Helvetica. Um, This is just an anecdote about what typeface and typeface design used to look like in the late late 80s early 90s the very early eight stages of digital 
thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it incredibly interesting, and it's where we're going to end. It's a longer quote, so stick with me. Quote, When I started at art college in the 80s, all typography still had to be hand-drawn using type scale rulers, and there was no computer-assisted design at all. I cannot imagine. The Lestrat book contained printed copies of all available typefaces and was a must-have for all graphic design students, mainly used for tracing. At the college, the one CompuGraphic typesetting machine, or CompuGraphic typesetting machine, which created type for printing, was allowed only for your final show work because of the expense of using it. The CompuGraph machine was an analog system for making fonts. It used a photographic method. An image of the font was attached to a carousel mechanism before the light was projected through it onto photographic paper. This was then processed like a photograph using chemical baths. The result was a long strip of text. Each typeface included different fonts, italic, narrow, expanded, upper, lower, and boldened. Each of these had different sizes from 4.5 to 72 point size. Only a few typefaces were available, a sans serif for headings, such as Helvetica, two or three body copy typefaces, such as Garamond, Times Roman, Caslon, and then a script typeface for fancy stuff, such as wedding invitations. The tiny availability of fonts was because the typefaces were expensive to, to buy. Copy was entered via a monochrome visual display unit, screen, and keyboard, but was rarely what you see is what you get. This is, you couldn't actually see on the screen what the font looked like. It was just entered as codes. You wouldn't actually see your text until it was returned to you a day later as a photographic print on a long strip of thick paper. End quote. Wow. That's crazy. I was and, definitely born in the right time period because I don't have the patience for that, you know? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine if you had to do all of that for a wedding invitation. I'm like, I'm only inviting one person to the wedding. There's no <laughs> wedding at this point. Yeah. I, no. I would just call everybody, be like, hey, right. this is it. You could, so. well, yeah, you could, yeah. but send out carrier pigeons. Exactly. But then handwritten. you have to handwritten. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting anecdote. I was like, damn, that's, first of all, it's crazy that they had to use a book to like be able to copy the fonts which makes sense right i just that just like occurred to me i was like oh yeah they weren't even on the computer like when these were being invented these different fonts or not everybody's working off of exactly not everybody's working off of like a printing press right so like how do the average joe designer at the time even like the 70s and 80s how were they designing posters anything Tracing, they were using that's crazy. books and tracing is crazy. Well, I was kind of hoping you'd talk about wingdings, but oh, I'm sorry, no wingdings. I f- that is one that's of my favorite about- typeface. <laughs> one of the things about Grace and I that I love about the podcast is that we could do the same topic and we would cover very different right. things about the topic. Like if Grace had done fonts and typefaces, she would have a hundred percent covered windings and like you would have thought about that from the very beginnings like i want to cover that i didn't even think about it right it's just which is why we make a good team we're the perfect team we each have half a brain and together <laughs> one whole hopefully brain. hopefully it's one whole brain yeah but yeah so that's typefaces i hope you guys learned enough to be annoying at your next party and or design meeting that's kind of the whole point of this podcast i find myself doing that all the time like someone was talking about absinthe and I was like, well, actually, the reason why absinthe was associated with, like, <laughs> hallucinating. 
And it's like the same thing. They look at me like I'm crazy. It's like, why do you know all of this? It's like I had to research it for a topic. Like otherwise, <laughs> there's no way I would know. You know, have all of it on the top of my head. But I know. I feel like sometimes I like when we're playing video games, like on Discord with our friends, and somebody says something completely innocuous, and I am the most annoying person. I'm like, well, actually, and then I word vomit at everybody for like the next ten minutes. People are like, oh, and I'm like sorry, I just had to let you know. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. That's us. It's us. We're just obnoxious know-it-alls. But then if you, like, ask me something, like, this is how, what I always <laughs> say about trivia. So I'm, like, totally useless unless it happens to be, like, a very specific topic that I know about. And I only right. know about very random things. I'm not, like, I'm not well-rounded in a way that, like, I'm good at history. But if you ask me, like, one, maybe one specific thing in history, I might know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, we talk about, like, oh, yeah, we can word vomit about certain topics that we covered. But there's also things that, like, I covered that I could not recall to you if you had a gun to my head. Right. You know There's definitely I mean? certain things that like stick with you more than others, but yeah. Well, but that's that. Let us know something what... sticks with you. <laughs> right. Let us know what topic has stuck with you the most. You can talk to us on Twitter at the good eve girls or Instagram at the good evening girls or TikTok at the good eve girls. Come on down. And um, actually, sorry, listeners, but we will not be back next week. Uh, I'll be on vacation. It's going to be the the 4th of July, Independence Day. So enjoy the time off. Uh, And while you do, keep curious. And we will be back again very, very soon. We promise. Before you know it. Before you know it. All right, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.